we've set two Guinness World Records for the fastest half marathon in a suit with men and women. And neither were a stunt. They were my partner, Gihan, and his now wife, Kara. Neither, they both did it for fun just because we had a, a fun Saturday plan. And both of them set the Guinness World Record, which was just fantastic and a great way to show that if our product can handle a half marathon at record speed, it can <laughs> probably handle your commute to work. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right. In today's episode, I get to talk with the CEO of Ministry of Supply, Aman Advani. He's got a fascinating story because he started his career in management consulting. He went to MIT to get his MBA. And you think he would go down an engineering path. Instead, he had a problem that he hated wearing suits to work. So he actually started a men's fashion brand. And him and his co-founder, who's an MIT engineer, engineered essentially the most comfortable clothes you can wear. He's got a fascinating story. They launched on the back of Kickstarter, where they did half a million in sales in the first month. They've gone on to become an eight-figure business. And he talks about lessons he's learned along the way, how they've been able to use product innovation to drive growth. They've even broken two Guinness records by people wearing their clothes, their work clothes, to actually run marathons. And at the end, he gives some really good advice on choosing a co-founder, lessons any founder should have, or should be thinking through if they're about to start something, and even give some half-baked startup ideas. But really hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a fun one. And let me know what you think. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Awesome. Well, I'm really pumped to have him on here. I've been a fan of Ministry of Supply for quite a while now, and we actually got to work together for a little bit, which was a blast. But Amon, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Amon Advani. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Ministry of Supply. We are a Boston-based clothing brand using science to make the most comfortable clothing on and for the planet. Um, available at ministrysupply.com and our Boston flagship store is my quick plug. Very cool. And I'm excited to get into even how I heard about you from your Kickstarter launch and really being innovative in the, the men's fashion space. But one thing that's super interesting is if you look at your background before Ministry of Supply, it does not look like you were going to get into men's fashion. You worked at Deloitte, you went to MIT, and then my guess is the natural progression for most people that go down that route is not into fashion. Like, what was life like before you got into this? And what were you going to do with your career before you took this kind of right turn? Yeah, it's, it's such a great question. I always enjoy starting here. Yeah, it certainly wouldn't have expected myself. I mean, even if you'd asked me 15 years ago that men's fashion, even women's fashion, maybe even less likely for someone with my profile, but have had an absolute blast kind of letting that side of me and that passion really come to life through through this brand that we've poured so much into. I'd add on kind of a child of, of Indian immigrants who could have cared so little about fashion. You might not have known they even never shopped. So it was all the factors adding up to a bit of a surprise career path that my parents are still kind of a jaw dropped on, but have, have thoroughly enjoyed it. But for me, I think it was, I joke that everyone's got experience in clothing just by wearing it, right? So if that passion comes out, if you can build that link in your own head between how I look and how I feel, both on the inside and the outside, once that link is built and you see the kind of linearity between your comfort and aesthetic and, and that correlation to your, your confidence and your happiness and your joy, 
once that link is built, it can't be unbuilt. And you grow this, uh, you know, and a lot of, of your listeners surely have grown the obsession with knowing how clothing can impact their psyche and happiness. So for me, that's what it all came down to is an engineer by background, dressing up for consulting every Monday morning and every Thursday night, getting on planes and off planes, despise putting on this kind of dry, clean only, stiff, wrinkly, sweat stain prone half untucked uniform pulled out of plastic dry cleaning bags and hacking local hotel irons and wanted so badly to use that engineering background to create something that was soft, stretchy, machine washable, stuff that actually looks forward to putting on. And, and that was really the impetus for starting to hand hack prototypes and eventually start the company. Gotcha. So you're an engineer, you're traveling for work, you're doing consulting and the weekends you're probably wearing comfortable stuff, but the weekdays you're putting on the dreaded dry clean only shirts, which I empathize with. I remember when I used to work in investment banking, I had like two suits that I would rotate in and out of. And I was in Dallas at the time. I remember putting on a wool suit in the summer and within seven minutes I'd be drenched. And I was like, well, this is really not a good way to go through life. So I think the pain point is very clear. If I had to guess, you probably owned five or 10 suits. You only picked those two because they were the best of the evils. And I feel like that's uh, exactly what behavior we saw customers saying they opted. There was 50% of their wardrobe they opted to wear 90% of the time. And that's exactly where we want to sit. We don't do any kind of wild colors, anything crazy. It's very close to home. And, uh, and our goal is to be one of those two suits, but one that you actually didn't dread, but actually look forward to wearing a suit, which is uh, kind of a wild goal. Oh, yeah. I went with the black one because it could hide the sweat stains. And the other one yep. was actually oh, yeah. kind of comfortable, but comfortable with the asterisk for a suit. So so you're doing engineering. You're like, OK, you would maybe go down a traditional path. This pain point hits really hard. I love looking at ideas or just companies in general from the framework of coming up with an idea. Second, how do you get a little bit of traction? And then third, growth. So can you talk about how you identify the pain point, but then when you decide to really flush out this idea? Yeah, so I, as a consultant with a stable job, I was, this 2010, 2011, I, you know, was going to grad school. And I knew in 2011, I'd be heading to grad school. And so your mind starts to wander a little bit in those last days before you kind of check out and kind of go back into an academic environment. So I started hand hacking prototypes before I built any sort of business plan or wider vision. I would just take the soles of Nike uh, running socks, super cushy soles, cut them out with a little pair of scissors, cut out the soles of a pair of gold-toed six-for-a-dollar Costco dress socks and swap them in. So I'd have this dress sock that looked on the outside like a normal dress sock with you, you know, if you saw me from other angles. But for me, I was walking around in this cushy, moisture-wicking, super soft Nike footbed, and uh, it felt like I was getting a tiny little leg up, pun intended. I was getting this little... Uh, Boops. So I think it was just such a small uh, but powerful signal to me that clothing, if hacked, could actually do this. And we were a generation that grew up on Under Armour reminding us that you know performance fabrics could impact performance. And, and so with that in mind, decided to, to build a business plan and was lucky enough to meet my partner my first week back at business school. Gotcha. So you, you're kind of, you're going after the market of one yourself. I didn't, I actually didn't know you started with socks, but that is genius because I hate those super thin dress socks. So when, a question, uh, the worst. oh, I hate it. And so you're going to MIT to get your MBA. Did you go there with the intention of, hey, I, I have an entrepreneurial streak. I'd love to start something. Or was it more open-minded? Just let me see what opportunities come my way. Yeah, it may, it may have been a, a lack of confidence in myself, but I was pretty sure I was going to head back to Deloitte. I, I had four wonderful years at the firm. There was no reason to, to not go back after business school. 
then I decided to let myself kind of dream and play while in school, and uh, including the, the summer in between you know, my two years in business school, I ended up not doing my second year in business school. So really, just that summer, I devoted myself to saying, let's see this through. If, if other people have the same issue or opportunity as I do, maybe there's a real business here. I was yeah, honestly just incredibly lucky to meet my my now partner, Gihan, who was doing the exact same thing at MIT, which is more the odds that at an engineer was doing the exact same thing with running shirts and sewing panels of running shirts into panels of dress shirts underneath the arms and the center back so that underneath the blazer, he felt great and no one else knew it. Man, that's quite serendipitous. Can you give advice to anyone that's looking to partner with someone? What are some things you saw early on or even looking back as a Monday morning quarterback? where you're like, wow, we did some things really well to make sure this partnership was set up for success or even things to watch out for when you're looking to find a co-founder? Yeah, there's so much advice out there and it's hard to sift through all of it. You know, do partner with friends, don't partner with friends, find someone with a complimentary skill set, you know, find someone who sees things your way. Uh, <laughs> and there's so much out there. I, I think the biggest the biggest reason that you and I work so well, I don't know that I'm closer to anybody uh, outside of my immediate family than I am to my partner, Gihan. I think the reason it works so well is because our values are perfectly aligned, but our skill sets are almost perfectly different. And, and he is maker, he's product visionary. I am manager 15 minute chunks of my life. And we operate so differently, but we've, I think, grown a respect for each other that's led to this beautiful world where we often disagree, but we do so in a healthy, productive way that somehow just makes us closer. So I, I think the, the only advice I'd give somebody considering a co-founder is probably there's the rational piece of aligned values and misaligned skill sets or, or separate skill sets. But then there's the emotional piece, which is probably more important, which is trusting your gut uh, and listen to that little feeling. So I think this is probably someone I could really get along with versus I can see us not exactly clicking to listen to that little gut. Yeah, that's a good call out on having the same values, because that way when tough, when times get tough, you always kind of come back to that core that you, for the most part, have the same vision, the same end goal you're going after. But yeah, you're right. There's a lot of advice out there on it, but that was a pretty good summary. So you have the idea, you find this amazing partner that complements your skill sets. Talk about how you validate this idea and try and prove traction that you could act actually make stuff and get people to buy it. Yeah, early on, it wasn't even necessarily about scaling. In the first nine months, just we're engineers, right? We're product people. So I think for us, it was just about perfecting the product. We spent months just prototyping over and over before we even thought about launch strategies or scale. I mean, we look back and we say that we launched the company in you know, late 2012, 2013 on Kickstarter, which publicly looked like the launch. But really, before that, we'd spent a year just tweaking on product. And, and that was so important for us to, to get right from the get-go. Now, in hindsight, there was so much we didn't get right. But at the time, it was just an obsession with the perfect product that you know, said, okay, if we can build a perfect product, people will come. And, and sure enough, that happened a few months later when we launched on Kickstarter. Can you talk about what that means to tweak the product? Because I, I think that gets glossed over sometimes. Like, oh, we, we came with this idea, we did all these iterations, and then boom, we created Spanx or whatever. But I think that's yeah. the really hard stuff. How many iterations did you go through? What does that process look like? Are you testing the closeout yourself? I'd, I'd love any more color on that. Yeah, I think one of the things we, well, I'll say conceptually, I think we had it right. In practice, it did not execute. Again, in hindsight, all of this is clear. And I think what we did right, I think, was iter design, right? Every single iteration we would bring to real potential customers and say, what do you think? And, and they would give us brutal, honest feedback on what they thought. Where I think we got it wrong 
was that we asked the wrong questions. It wasn't, we didn't just say more broadly. I, in fact, I, I misspoke earlier. We didn't say, what do you think? We said, does this perform? We asked a very specific question on, you know, wear this for a day. Did you get sweat stains? No. Did you get wrinkles? No. Was it soft? Yes. Was it stretchy? Yes. We achieved all of our functional goals. We did not ask questions more broadly speaking. Did you like it? Would you wear this over your other dress shirts, right? And it turns out we'd missed one huge thing in that first iteration was the aesthetic. And forgetting that fashion is first and foremost driven by the aesthetic. And, and these things had, in hindsight, these kind of ugly, limp collars that would have prevented anyone from wearing it in a serious situation. So in hindsight, we approached it correctly with iterative design, customer-driven feedback. We were able to listen to brutal, honest feedback. But we missed one piece of it, which was asking the right question in the first place and making sure that your your overall goal is aligned. Now, we quickly corrected that world-class design director who, who did not hold back and, 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 in fact, is still very much part of the team. Our design director came in and said, no, there's a lot to fix here. You guys have the engineering is good, if not great, uh, the aesthetic. Let me take a cut of that. And so we took this world-class designer and, and our engineering skills and put them all in a bucket together and, and created a graceful marriage. Gotcha. So r- really... You were right about the idea, but asking the right questions to customers, if they would use it, if they'd use it over their existing product, and maybe even some use cases could, could be helpful. It, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think letting that customer really ultimately pick, assuming you were not creating something kind of categorically new, right? People know what dress shirts are. The simplest question is, would you wear this over an existing one? And, and really opening up an honest dialogue about that. Because if the answer is anything less than an, uh, an overwhelming, absolutely, I would wear this 10 times out of 10 over my existing options. Then I'd say go back to the drawing board until you get that enthusiasm because it's, it's going to be an uphill battle with anything less. That's a really good point. It needs to be a hell yes or it's a no and something that they're very passionate about because anytime you're starting something new, it has to, it can't be 2x better. It needs to be 10x better to really make some, make a dent. So I'm interested in when people have ideas, but when they go all in, how they do that, whether it's funding it themselves, raising money, or do it like for you all, I know there's the Kickstarter launch component. I'd love to hear the mindset as far as when you're going all in and how Kickstarter plays a part in that. Yeah, we didn't know what to expect with Kickstarter. I, I think in general, the, the all-in moment and the, the all-in moment happening versus it needing to be some big, massive launch are actually two separate questions. I I think the all-in moment needs to happen when you feel like that product is truly bulletproof. When people couldn't, your testers truly tell you that they couldn't live without the product, and now you're ready to go hit market. We launched on Kickstarter with a bunch of kind of fanfare and a lot of hype and hurrah, and I don't think that was necessary in hindsight. It was certainly good, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I, I think getting the product on the market and getting real market feedback and continuing to tweak that product over the first year is probably a healthy thing to do, and starting slow, while maybe not as exciting, is actually has its perks, too. We started by selling $430,000 of product in our first month, which was awesome and validating, but also created a new set of constraints that we weren't prepared for, having to build a new supply chain, having to scale something that was built for a scale that was 10 times smaller. So I think by kind of easing into it, you you probably build a better a set of bones than we did, where we had to kind of go back and correct some of our bones two or three years later by having such a big loud start. I mean, that's huge. You launch and you're already at over a... $4 million a year run rate off of that launch. What advice would you give to other people that are looking to make a launch that has a splash? It sounds like there's growing pains that come with that. Was it your initial value prop that got people excited? Or was there a flagship product that you pushed that people were excited about? 
Yeah, a couple things I'll note that one is just, it was pre-sales, right? So, so Kickstarter, you're only testing a message. You're not testing a product. You haven't really made the product. So I think our message resonated, right? It was this idea of really ditch the old dress shirt, ditch the iron, ditch the dry cleaner, just the super stiff fabrics. And that message of kind of NASA materials come to, comes to dress shirts, right? MIT students tackle work clothing was, uh, you know, people really resonated. Press resonated, consumers resonated. People were really ready for that change. And, and even more so, I'd say now post-COVID, people are just embracing the idea of feel like I'm wearing sweatpants or pajamas and look like I'm wearing dress clothes. But, so I think the message really resonated. I think where we again missed in that first swing was saying our product, our brand and message outpaced the product itself, which is the danger of a really sticky message with a product that's not quite ready to support it. Gotcha. Yeah, because you want to be able to deliver on it so people love it and they come back and buy more. But if they have a bad first experience, it could impact repeat purchase and referrals and all that good stuff. Very interesting. So you've got the idea. You've got some insane traction on the back of getting it to market, leveraging Kickstarter. As you look at growth, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on growth from two perspectives. What's kind of worked in the past? that you learned a lot from, but also as you look at growth going forward, because the landscapes are changing so much, there's so many options out there. Like, how are you thinking of growth going forward? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think for us, we've learned one thing over eight or nine years of doing this, which is just to play our game. We are innovators in product. We want to create the best in class and the first in class in every category we enter. And so for a while, we were looking to play the innovation game across uh, everything related to go to market, right? Could we have the first, you know, website features or uh, brand, you know, assets that were first of their kind? And we realized over time to put all of our energy in, into only one thing, which is this product that when you put it on, you can't imagine taking it off. And, and so that's what it is. Our, our expansion strategy is our product strategy. They're synonymous. Everything else lives in support of that. And so what you'll see from us in the coming months and years is a, a heavy amount of category expansion where we get to really test this idea of scientifically better product in new realms that we have not gone to before with the same iterative testing rigor that we had for every other product. So whether we enter bedding or footwear, we will continue to put everything through an absolute bear of a ringer from a testing standpoint to make sure it is truly ready for market, both functionally and aesthetically. So what I'm hearing is to really grow, it's launching new innovative products that can add more money to the top line. Is that money coming from existing customers or like love Ministry of Supply? I love the you know, kinetic shorts or pants. They launched a new shirt, I'm in. They launched new socks, I'm in. They launch whatever that is. Or is it launching new categories like going into women or going to a different persona? and trying to play the acquisition game there. I'm just kind of interested in, as you think about growth, how that plays to like your existing customers or going after new customers. Yeah, our head of sales is, is super sharp. You may have met Allison before when we got the chance to work together. If I channeling her perspective, I, I think what she'd say is it, it go after the next best customer, right? Which is either or both retaining an existing customer and continuing to get uh, you know closet share or go after a new customer that would will you know eventually become our, our next best customer. So it's kind of a, a marginal gains, right? And saying, well, what is the next dollar of, of marketing or acquisition spend? Is it reacquiring or is it acquiring someone new? And, and, and of course, it ends up being a balance is the, is the only answer there. But I think that's where we kind of look at the incremental benefit of the next dollar and where we should spend our focus. From a product standpoint, 
we're agnostic, right? We think that we don't have a huge, you know, product funnel and saying, this is your first purchase. This is your, so we advertise pretty much the entire catalog to both new and existing customers. Gotcha. Yeah. And what's interesting is I I read this article. It totally sucked me in because the headline was very clickbaity, but I was like, I'll, I'll click. It was CAC is dead. Why retention is the new acquisition. I'm like, okay, I'm into it. And it just talked about the best thing you can do is build the brand awareness, get them to fall in love with the brand and a flagship product, and then constantly across sell, upsell, build up that brand loyalty. And it's kind of doing a hybrid of that is, is what you're saying. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I'd be interested, are there any things like looking back or even going forward, any one-off like tactics or hacks, not to make you go down that path, but just from a, a growth standpoint that worked really well, whether they were one-time or repeatable, anything that comes to mind? In terms of, of customer acquisition or in terms of uh, overall business strategy? Uh, yeah, overall growth in general. Yeah, I think the biggest thing we've continued to learn, and it's the lesson I was going to have hammered in my head, is expectations and reality. And the intersection of those two is where you have happy customers, low return rates, high return on ad spend. If you can set honest and beautiful expectations of how great the product is that are, are truly matching of what the product delivers when it arrives at your door, everybody's thrilled. Your return rate is low. Your return on ad spend is high because you're, you're promoting a message that's honest and, and accurate. Your repeat customer rate is extremely high, right? So the, the closer you can build expectations and reality. In fact, if reality can just barely exceed expectations, that's the sweet spot. Now, if reality exceeds expectations too much, you're probably underselling the product, which is inefficient. And if expectations exceed reality, you're getting a massive return rate, and that's inefficient. And so really thinking about the two, how how does kind of brand and marketing that beautiful, perfect expectations, and then your product team deliver on it. Yeah, that's a really good call out. And a lot of times I think people overlook that. One thing I'm just curious to hear your opinion on, it's gone from people working in office, a lot of people are working remote. You're probably seeing firsthand how that impacts people's buying behavior and their fashion trends as it's more maybe casual attire. What are things you're seeing? And if you're trying to look into an eight ball, like the future of fashion and things you're trying to be proactive on, what are you all thinking through? Yeah, there's a few different movements we're seeing that we're just thrilled about right now. I mean, I think overall, we're just seeing this hybrid dress code emerge. And hybrid really, not to overcomplicate, it really just means singular dress code, right? It means I'm wearing the same thing on a Saturday afternoon that I might be wearing on a Monday morning. And that's never before been the case, right? Right now I'm wearing, we're launching on Friday, this pair of Fusion Terry shorts. It's it's a proprietary version of French Terry that we developed. It's effectively sweatshorts, but kind of dressed up. And I'm wearing it with a nice polo. And that's something that I would absolutely be wearing on a Sunday afternoon. And to see this kind of closet unification where you don't have summer wardrobe, winter wardrobe, formal wardrobe, casual work wardrobe, work versus social, to see all that being united into a single wardrobe that's focused on uh, presentation meets comfort is to us is thrilling. It means that you're, you're not owning more than you need. You're not owning you know, two garments per day. You're owning, and it means you're focusing most on quality rather than volume. And for us, we're just really excited about this kind of shift of dress code that's no less exciting and presentable, but far more comfortable and versatile. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'm even seeing people rather than going the fast fashion route, go with more staple pieces that they're going to wear more. They cost more, but it's worth it because they last longer. And that definitely plays to your favor. But maybe that's because I'm getting older and I'm more narrow minded in what I'm seeing. No, very cool. So you've obviously like 
done some amazing stuff. I'm sure you talked to a lot of other founders. If someone's starting a, a consumer brand today, what is some advice you would give them as they're about to go down that track if, if they were starting today? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. One is find areas where there are tailwinds, find things that people want to buy, right? I think we find it much easier to sell a t-shirt than it is to sell a, a dress shirt, for instance, right? Is that people are just more excited about buying a t-shirt. And so for us, we found a good blend of, of the must-haves and the want-to-haves, right? And, and of, of course, our goal is to merge the two. But finding industries and movements where there are tailwinds will only make your job you know, easier. And the second thing I'd say is even in doing so, your product has to be just absolutely stunning, breathtaking, can't live without it quality. And I think so often you have folks starting businesses that are much more focused on the brand, the marketing, the channel strategy, the team, the fundraising, and all of that will be your greatest asset or your greatest distraction depending on the product itself. So just really focusing on building products that people genuinely want and need. That would be my second and maybe most important advice that I can give someone is just really nailing the product. It's funny because it sounds so obvious, but as a company that works with a lot of startups, it really will make or break you. Are you truly solving a problem and do you know your customer and your persona? Because that's what I love about Ministry of Supply. Even I was working in New York at Urban Daddy and we would write to a lot of consultants and investment bankers. And anytime we would mention Ministry of Supply, the engagement was through the roof just because you knew the persona and it was truly unique, like your angle of Imagine if an MIT engineer made your suit and that's what Ministry of Supply is. It worked every single time. So appreciate the... the I love it. We'll we'll have to use that line, actually. It's a really great one. But I I think you're hitting on maybe a a third piece of advice I'd throw in there, which is differentiation matters, right? If you're playing the same game as everyone else, all of your marketing channels will get bid up so badly that your efficiencies will never come to play your own game. One other thing, like you've been a CEO from idea now, I don't know how much you can speak to scale and like the size or just give people an idea, but like, how have you had to up your game as far as new skills you've had to acquire as a CEO or skills you've had to let go of as you've had to become more and more maybe of a manager or leader? Yeah, I think one of the surprising things for me that I've learned in, in doing this now for a few years, we don't generally share revenue numbers. We're an eight-figure brand, which you know is probably what anyone would guess anyway. It gives you a sense that we're not, we're in the fashion world, that's still a, a drop in the bucket. It's still tiny in our world growing and, and getting there. So I think one of the things I maybe I would answer your question with is actually what I haven't given up. And that is a deep focus on the details that matter, right? So I still spend maybe a disproportionate or maybe an improper amount of time focusing on a lot of the things that really move the needle for us and get deeply into the weeds. I mean, we just relaunched our Boston flagship store and it took a good bit of my time, partly because I was just excited about it and had passion, but also because it's a huge statement when we make that first store back up. So whether it was kind of doing a walkthrough of the bathrooms and making sure that we had aesthetic there as we rebuilt the store, but no details too small. I think there's this idea that as you grow in a leadership position, you have to let go of details. I just like kind of fundamentally disagree with that. I think you can open up an Excel sheet and do some quick math if you want to prove something or, or disprove it. I think you can get involved in, in details that you think are uh, critical to moving the needle. So I, I, I know that's kind of a, an odd answer to your question on what I haven't let go of and perhaps to a fault, but I find it so important to stay deeply involved in uh, what we think will move the needle. And so it's those details that are maybe around customer touch points, product innovation, anything that really gets to the core of the value you're delivering. I don't know if that's a too vague of a way to put it, but I think that's a really good call out that you have. Yeah. And my partner, Gihan, I've said here so many times, product, product, product. My partner, Gihan, would say he, he, he never misses a product management meeting. You know, he's in there 
every single time, pen and paper, ready to listen and ready to share honest feedback or suggestions and also ready to get involved hands-on with making things come to life when we see opportunities. So I think for both of us, it's we like being in the weeds where that is uh, appropriate. That's awesome. Yeah. Even I think I heard something like even Jeff Bates, even up until last year, was still obsessed with the homepage of the Amazon.com website, making sure the little details were there. I want to switch to because from doing consulting and working with a lot of businesses to Ministry of Supply, and I know you like help and you have a really impressive network of other founders that you just are, are really open with and connect with. I'm always interested in what are half-baked startup ideas you have that you either you wouldn't necessarily want to build, but you wish existed, or it's something they're like, oh man, I wish somebody would make that. But, but what are things you have? They could be related to fashion or they could be completely different. Yeah. One of the things we talk a lot about is this idea of solving your own problems or user-driven innovation. And anytime you end up in a situation where it would just be easier if I had blank, right? It would be easier if, if my life could kind of go through that. This morning, and I, I went through a situation where we have I got, you got a new laptop, and what do you do with the old one? And so I had this you know wonderful conversation with a colleague here, and said, kind of, there's a way to kind of get rid of the old laptop that wasn't that was sustainable and, and oriented to privacy. I'd be thrilled. And so I think I, I always encourage folks who think that entrepreneurship might be the right path for them to just be hyper vigilant to those little details in their life that say, how do I solve this little problem? And it, it doesn't have to necessarily be a solution that you jump to, but better identifying the problem certainly helps quite a bit. Yeah, I, I think I have two old laptops floating around here that are collecting dust. That, that's actually an interesting one. I like the kind of ones that are obvious, but easy to overlook, but has a huge market share of people that would hit that. I'm going to pitch one idea to you that's quite timely. So with college sports, they just made it to where they can take endorsements, right? And you probably already thought of this in some regard. And I'm like fascinated to see all these startup opportunities that are going to come from that. From consulting days at Deloitte, like when Sarbanes actually came into play, a lot of the accounting firms or consulting firms helped big companies that had to deal with that. And that was a big money generator for consulting firms. And so with college sports, there's going to have to be some book of record on all these endorsement deals that athletes take on and how they report that. I think there'll be like some, somebody's going to make the software that just knocks. I I couldn't agree more. I think. Yeah, it'll be, yeah, I'll be super jealous when I see somebody IPO with that software. Another thing is who are going to be the brands or the companies that sponsor these athletes? So here's my uh, half-baked idea for Ministry of Supply. I only, there's probably a lot of holes in it, but what I have is whether it's Ministry of Supply starts a sports agency where you actually sponsor not just athletes, but student athletes. But I think you don't go with the Zion Williamson for one year Duke. You go with the person that's at MIT or Pepperdine or Berkeley. That's the javelin thrower. That's the volleyball player. That's also trying to cure cancer or is also going to be an astronaut that eventually will kind of get to that lifestyle of ministry of supply, where it's this kind of intersection of innovation, work and play. But I'm trying to think it might be a bad idea where you're just burning money, giving money to these college athletes and nobody pays attention, or it could be a great way to get the brand out to the right people. Or here's maybe the byproduct of it. It's a great recruiting tool for you. If you find a great engineer or marketing person that you'd want for Ministry of Supply. But anyway, I'll pause there. What do you think of this idea, the the Ministry of Supply sports agency? I love it. I think it's fascinating. One of the things we've always 
I would say struggle with it is the wrong word because it's a bit extreme, but a, a hard time forming a perspective on We don't really like traditional influencer marketing, kind of buy the athlete and, and force them and pay them to tell everyone how much they like your product. Has never felt kind of real or organic to us, so we've stayed away from that. But I think there's something really interesting there to also the actual pool of people who now meet these criteria has opened up massively and just how many NCAA college athletes there are is extraordinary that you can find a natural fit for someone who both stands for science like we do but also performance like they do and finding that intersection much, might be much more possible in a world where you have 10 times as many athletes up for, uh, for discussion as you did just a few weeks ago. What you can do is you just get engineering students they are also athletes and they don't even talk about liking the product, but you make them stress tested in extreme ways. Maybe that's how it is. I love it. Yeah. We okay. did. We did as a fun fact that I always like to share is that we've set two Guinness world records for the fastest half marathon in a suit with men and women. And neither were a stunt. They were my partner, Gihan, and his now wife, Kara. Neither, they both did it for fun just because we had a, a fun Saturday plan. And both of them set the Guinness World Record, which was just fantastic and a great way to show that if our product can handle a half marathon at record speed, it can <laughs> probably handle your commute to work. <laughs> I forgot. I remember seeing that actually. That is so awesome. Yeah, you just need to give it to every uh, sprinter and runner. Okay. Another one I had for you is, I. this is not a big idea. This is a small idea, but I love stories of people from idea to growing a company, but most people that are doing the coolest stuff are too busy to document it. I wish you had some sort of a paid newsletter, some sort of a community where you're working in public, but you could control it, right? So it's just to the people that would really get something out of it. But for me, I would love to see that because I love learning through other people's experience. So maybe it's you starting a sub stack. Maybe it's you doing a, uh, you could do a Twitch, right? You could just have a camera on you 24 seven. But for me, I learn a lot through that. I love it. No, I think I think particularly providing that transparency early on as a company starts to scale is just a beautiful and wonderful thing because it lets people kind of in on your brand or on your project in a way that you could never replicate through just a, a normal email marketing platform. No, very cool. Well, any other half-baked ideas you have? I think those are some pretty good ones I think people could probably run with. I, I, I generally just always encourage that to listen to that little voice in your head that said, this is a problem for me. Maybe it's a problem for other people too, but I'd also encourage in, in half-baked ideas, not just thinking about financial growth or scale, but also impact and thinking that I have a lifelong dream. And maybe this actually is an answer to your question of opening up a coffee shop run by people underemployed or unemployed for reasons that may be outside of their control, homeless population, any sort of handicap they should think. Wouldn't it be great if we could create a true scaled operation that had just an awesome social impact to it? And, and it may not be the most financially great business on the planet, but it would certainly be one that, that was fulfilling and really enjoyable. So I'd encourage your listeners to think on other dimensions as well that are not just scale or profit. Yeah, especially if you're going to be working on something for five or 10 years, I think impact's extremely important. So absolutely. one thing I like to end with is a question I ask everybody is the idea of what's the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your career? You know, well, one of our two of our first investors at Ministry Sign, and in hindsight, I think we probably took on investors slightly too early, but it was such a meaningful thing for me not having an idea how kind of venture capital or angels worked or how investments worked to see people take, you know, a, a bet on us at a time. Later on, valuations were based on revenue multiples or EBITDA multiples and investing became a fairly rational decision, of course, an emotional component to it. But early on, we were kind of effectively pre-revenue. It was really just, I think, validating for a couple of our earliest investors who just said, I believe in this. I think there's something really special here to take that shot on us. And while I know that it's investing as an equation and they expected a return, 
it still felt to me like they were taking a bet on us personally over our business idea. And I think that was just a, a level of kind of kindness and faith that changed how I see myself. So I, I am still forever appreciative of those early investors who took a bet on us before we were even really, you know, prepared to take a bet on ourselves. Yeah. What does that do for your mindset when you think you have something special that people like it so much, they're throwing their own dollars on it? Does it give you that level of confidence, but maybe also a little bit of pressure like, crap, I, I don't want to let them down? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. Is that You now have this pressure, which I, it comes with the territory, but I do think there's a natural feeling of phantom imposter syndrome when you start a company, it, it, particularly for me in my you know, mid-20s, having, well, what business do I have trying to go change fashion forever? Of course, I think I can, but I also realize that's a wild suggestion. Uh, and when someone else kind of gives you that validation through their hard-earned money or time, investments can come in multiple forms, that it does just kind of boost your own confidence in a way that, that hopefully it's really healthy and, and productive. That's awesome. Well, Ma, I can't thank you enough for the time. I know you're super busy. I really appreciate it. Where would you like to point people if they want to learn more about you or Ministry of Supply? We, I do. I think we have a good bit of uh, transparency on the site. You can learn about anything and everything that we make or do on our website, ministryofsupply.com. You can poke around the about section. actually goes in, in uh, more depth than I think most do on exactly what happens behind the scenes. But I'd also welcome people, obviously, to our Boston flagship store here in, in Boston, 303 Newbury Street, or you can come to the office. We'll host you on a little tour, show you what's happening behind the scenes, uh, and just get in touch with me, and I'm always uh, ready and able to, to help host. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think a tour would be cool, especially if it's tied to product. But Amon, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Likewise, Jim. Looking forward to talking again soon. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.